Hi, you guys. This week on On the Slab, Silvio brings guest Matteo Guerrero on to talk about the brand new film, It, the remake of the Stephen King film and the miniseries from the 1990s. Now, it is kind of disturbing in terms of the content because it revolves almost singularly around violence against children, including the sexual abuse of a young woman, physical violence against young, young kids, um, and kids being asked to do violence as well. So keep that in mind as you listen. These are themes that are central to the plot itself. And this is just kind of Silvio and Matt really grappling with these issues. So um, I will not be on today because I am a grad student and sometimes grad student life is very, very hectic, but I will be on intermittently over the next couple months and then back to regular scheduling. I hope that you guys enjoy today's episode. It sounds like Matt and Silvio had a good time, but also got the pants scared off them at certain points. So without further ado, here's their take on Stephen King's It. Gentlemen, morticians, welcome to the morgue. We have a new film on this lab tonight. Now we begin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to On the Slab, the movie podcast where we cut movies open and see what makes them tick. I'm your host, Silvio Emery, and Annie's a little bit under the weather, what with a crazy workload, so... Okay, I'm kidding. She fell down a sewer grate. <laughs> so, today, I'm going to be presenting our very special guest. Uh, Mateo Guerrero. Matt, uh, of the famous, famous movie blog, Spook Show Cinema, is here with me to talk about the 2017 movie, It, directed by Andy Machete, uh, which is a remake of an adaptation of Stephen King's famous novel. So, happy to have you here, Matt. I'm happy to be here, Doc. So... Oh yeah, Matt's, I, Matt's a friend from college, so he's going to call oh, me Yeah, Doc. I can call you Sylvia, I can call you anything, it's not late for you dinner. Call me Doc, Doc All works, right. you know. Anyways, so we're going to start off with our time of death, and we're going to talk about kind of the context for this movie and how this exists, and what we were kind of expecting going into it. Now, reminder, uh, this will be a very spoiler-heavy podcast, but... We've rearranged things a bit, and we're going to do a bit of a review session, so all the spoilers will come after a warning. Okay? Sound good? Awesome. Time of death! Okay, so Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, It, the famous movie book phenomenon. Well, It is, as most folks know, is based on a one of Stephen King's most successful and famous books. It's uh, a whopper. It's about like a couple thousand pages long. And not a couple thousand. 1,100 pages. 1,100 pages, folks. 1,100 pages. And every single page is filled with something worth reading. Um, They originally adapted it um, back in the 80s or so. Or was it 1990? I think it was like early 90s. 1990. Yeah, I think that was it. Um, So it was originally written in the 80s and... They adapted it in the 90s and as a TV miniseries. As most folks have seen, the Tim Curry one, which, uh, that's an amazing performance, I'll tell you what. But some of the movie, not so great. But they 
have been in production hell of trying to get a new adaptation for the past, let's say, 10 years or so. Um, and lo and behold, they finally had one that actually went through with director Andy Machete after his successful uh, debut with uh, Mama. And Mama was the Argentinian ghost short that got adapted into a full-blown movie by the same director. Uh, Guillermo del Doro produced it, and it was fucking phenomenal. To... I have not seen the... Uh, I, although, from what I've seen of the effects test, I really want to. It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. There's a lot of stuff that he tries out in Mama that you can see not really better adapted in It, but you can see the DNA in how it first started out in Mama and applied here. So, Matt, I want to ask you some leading questions here. Uh, so, you're a big horror aficionado. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, right? that's about accurate. So, you are, you know, you're, you're plugged into the books, you're plugged into the movies. So, tell me a little bit, like, you know, your feelings and kind of your warm fuzzies about, I guess, Stephen King in general, Stephen King adaptations, the original It, and kind of where you were coming into this, like, what you were expecting. <clears throat> okay. So, Stephen King is... The man in horror, at least now he is. Um, in every generation or every era, there's a few horror writers who really just set the bar for everyone else. And Stephen King is that for us. If you've grown up liking horror, there's an amazing chance that you either have read all of Stephen King or some of Stephen King and really dug it, or you've gone out of your way not to read his stuff because you're an, you know contrarian. Uh, that's where he stands in, like, the horror world, and for everyone else, he is just what horror is, if you're not in, plugged in. Uh, so you are in the pro-king camp. definitely pro-king. When I was a kid, that was my dream, was, like, if I had all the money in the world, I'd have first edition of every Stephen King book. Um, his adaptations have always been kind of hit or miss, because his work, um, is less, uh, uh, what's the word for this? Stephen King's work is less about scary stuff paced in, as a horror movie would do so, and more about languidly explaining uh, way more details about a minor character who's just about to get killed than you would ever expect. And the deep psychological uh, pain and trauma that a character underwent as a child, and so that when they meet a monster where they, all that trauma is brought back, it doubles up the shock and horror of the situation. Whereas other things are just, oh, shoot, there's a guy with a knife. Fuck. Run away. Okay. So, two questions. Two questions here. One, favorite Stephen King book. Two, favorite Stephen King movie. Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, my favorite Stephen King book of the moment, that's where I'm going to put it at, is I can't say all time, but at the current moment is going to be his latest, uh, and not his latest book, the, the latest one that I thought was just fantastic, and that is, oh shoot, I can't remember the name, that's Doctor not Sleep? Doctor Sleep, I wasn't all that crazy about Doctor Sleep, uh, not Resurrection, that's not the one, Revival, Revival, um, his latest, can't say I know too much about that yeah, one, Revival is... Uh, it's one of, uh, it's pure king of we're just going to get an entire character's life story and this character isn't really the main dude. He's more of a witness to the actual uh, person who taps into Lovecraftian knowledge that really destroys the world. 
Sweet. All right, I'm going to scope us back to movies for a bit. Let's go back. Well, like, how, how do you feel about Stephen King movies? Let's, what's uh, your favorite? I'm guessing you have a lot of fondness for the original It. I'm just getting a I'm sense. fond of the original It, but I, this, uh, this, this hopefully we can tie this all together. My favorite Stephen King adaptation movie-wise would be 1408. That's the John... 14? Yeah, the John Cusack Interesting one. choice. Yeah. Uh, I saw a lot of 14 weight in this movie, and I am pleased with it. All right, thank you so much, Matt. So I'm just going to cover my own kind of context for this real fast. Uh, I've read quite a few Stephen King books. Uh, I was a big reader as a kid, and I think generally the movies haven't come out well. Now, I'm not as unanimously in Stephen King's camp mm -hmm. as you are. Uh, I see him much in the same way I see J.K. Rowling. And I know I'm going to get flack for this, and I'm happy to bring it, because that brings the fucking views. But, you know, Rowling, much like King, is fantastic at putting you in a scene and just transporting you to this place with these people. No one does it better. Uh, especially, read his book on writing. Fantastic resource. Fantastic resource. Like, King transports you. You live in his world, which is mostly Maine for some reason. But... You do. However, he suffers a little bit in terms of story structure. If you're going moment to moment, King is the best, almost bar none. But you get a couple of really weak endings. So I feel like, you know, King has had, you know, 50 bestsellers and like, you know, five good books. Oh. Uh, in yeah, see, I, I, I know we're going to start some shit here. Uh, in particular. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Carrie. I'm a big fan of Pet Cemetery. A lot of people hate the Tommyknockers, but I actually like the ending. Oh. I don't think it's as strong as his other books as a whole, but it has a strong ending, which I really Tommy like. Tommyknockers is a really great beginning and a really great ending, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in between that. I like the middle stuff, though. It's all weird and wacky and kind of fucked up. It's great. Uh, you know, The Shining's pretty good. I Here's the thing. The Shining is a great movie, I found it really difficult to get through the book. But then again, I was much younger when I read it, and the beginning is kind of plotting, so whatever. And in terms of movie, you know, Carrie is fantastic. Pet Sematary isn't as good. Like, I, I'm, I'm not crazy about King movies in general. Uh, you know, and the original It... Now, here, here's the thing. I deliberately made a choice not to bone up on this and go back and watch it before I watch this because I have some fond memories of it, but I don't. I didn't want to see this movie and be, like, point in point comparing it to the original, so I kind of let it go. I think it is a flawed movie. There's a lot of fun stuff in it, but from what I remember, it's really good, and then you get to the ending, and then it kind of falls off of it. That's you know? pretty accurate. It's, again, it's a... TV series, which is the sort of, or TV miniseries, which is what a lot of folks forget. And so it's not structured like a movie. And by combining both the childhood and adulthood aspects, it kind of mashes it uh, pacing-wise. Even the book is kind of uh, not really flawed, but it doesn't help Okay, that. no, I, I just realized one thing we do need to mm -hmm. discuss. I do think King is actually probably... More, more interesting, and I think a little bit less subject to his own tropes when he's not doing horror. Because you got to remember, Shawshank Redemption is king. Well, you got a point there. I really love his uh, Joyland book as well as Blockade Billy. Oh, didn't he also do um, whatever The Running Man was adapted from? Yeah, The Running Man. Yeah. yeah. 
No, okay, so no, the, I'm, I'm going to put that on my list of good King movies then, because I love The <laughs> Running Man. Even though it's an awful movie, I fucking it's love it. It's got nothing to do with the book, but that's where this... It's still a King adaptation, it's still on the true. board. I don't give Quite a shit. Quite true. So, real fast, uh, what were you expecting out of this movie? Uh, like, before you step in, foot in the theater, what was in your mind? Like, what was this movie going I'll to I'll tell be? you what, I've had three different reactions to this movie. The first one was way back when they announced it was getting made... And they were showing some, like, you know, promo images with Bill Skarsgård. And I was real on the fence. I was kind of worried it was going to be crap. Because the only thing I've ever seen Bill Skarsgård in was that awful E. Riley Roth show, uh, Hemlock Grove, which you think is going to be about werewolves. And they advertise it being about werewolves. And it ends up just being a mess. And I was disappointed that I spent so much time watching that show. So I wasn't, you know, excited. Um, but then as time grew on and more, not really came out about the movie, but more people actually like got to see it and were saying rave things about it, I started getting my hopes up a little bit. And so that was take number two. And as soon as right I got into the theater, all the pre-release reviews had come out. People were saying it was fantastic. People were loving it. Uh, Scott Wampler of, I think, Blood Death Movies, I think that's his site, uh, was calling it like you know his favorite King adaptation of all time, so I got excited. Can I just say what a great website name that I is? I know, right? Yeah, but he liked it, so I was excited. So you kind of had this gradient from trepidation to okay, maybe this is pretty good. Let's hope. Uh, I was kind of in the same boat. Uh, you know, I didn't keep much. To do with the you know the production or the stars, I kind of kept myself in the dark. I was just like, oh, they're making another Stephen King it movie. Okay, I guess. Uh, but what really struck me was the first trailer. And with the first trailer, you know, you got Georgie in the sewer, and you've got. But what I really liked about uh, the trailer, and this is an odd thing to fixate on, is Bill Skarsgård's teeth. Now, that sounds weird, but think think about it this way: is there was. That emphasis on like that buck tooth base to it, and there was this. I'm, I'm I was kind of extrapolating from that, but there was this idea in my mind that they were kind of focusing on the mouth, and in a way that creates this expectation that it's about devouring, and there's this physical representation of the, you know, kind of bigger thematic elements. Because I felt like there was a variety of different tooth lengths and so on without being, you know, the, oh, here's Tim Curry. Here's Tim Curry with a funky, sharp, jagged mouthpiece, you know? Yes. So I was kind of excited for it. And then the reviews started coming in. I was like, oh, okay, this is getting good reviews. Let's let's see it. And the promo shots are just beautiful. There's a lot of really, really nice cinematography in the trailer and in the really production stills they released. And I really like Bill Skarsgård's costume. So, you know, I was excited to see this. It's funny you point out the trailer. That was one of the you know big turning points from how I was feeling about the movie. And it sounds goofy, but I love that Georgie runs into that uh, sawhorse. <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, it's kind of funny. When I was in the theater, it definitely got laughs. But you know, he runs into the sawhorse, and it's like a totally natural occurrence that causes the boat to get away from him, which reflects the whole... Dairy is an awful cursed place that is trying to kill the people inside of it. And like that, that's awesome. So, uh, this is going to be probably the last thing we say before we go into spoiler town. So, what's your review? Like, 
spoiler free, how'd this movie do? I think it really captured uh, it. It really captured it. Uh, if you like horror movies, you're going to like this movie. If you like horror, you are going to like this movie. If you dig the concepts of like the inexplicable and nightmares, nightmarish visuals and nightmarish cinematography, you are going to find so much to love about this movie. Not just like it, you're going to love it. Uh, yeah, and if you like King, you're going to find quite possibly the most spiritually... Uh, the most spiritually accurate adaptation that's been brought to the silver screen. All right, awesome. Really, not misery. Misery's close. Misery's close, but this one. Is okay, different. okay. All right, cool. So, uh, I'm gonna say I love this movie. Uh, it was fantastic. I watched it twice, and there are scenes in it that genuinely spook the crap out of me. And, you know, it works very well on the surface level as a horror movie, but also it's got an amazing cast that really meshes together, and it's got character. It's not just about how spooky the scares are. It's about how much you care about the people who are getting spooked, and that's something that a lot of horror movies miss. So, all in all, I'm giving this, you know, 8.5 to 9 out of 10. You know, there's there's some things that came up on the second viewing, but... As a whole, this is really good. See it. Absolutely. That's my review. Alright. So, time to go to Spoiler Town, and we are going, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to the preliminary examination. Preliminary examination. Okay, so, Matt, why don't you tell us, give us a brief summary of the events of It. Yes, give us a brief summary of our 1,100-page book adaptation Okay, let's... I mean, how long was this? Like two hours long? You know, honestly, I don't even know, man. I don't even know how long I was in that theater. <laughs> yeah, oh, a really uh, interesting pacing. Uh, I just looked it up. It's two hours and Jesus 15 minutes. Jesus, okay. That should tell you something, folks. That should tell you something. By the way, spoiler, spoiler warning. warning. Yes, okay. The movie starts off with the brutal murder of Georgie. Georgie is a little boy who's making a little floating ship with his brother, uh, Bill, who's in home sick, and it's raining outside. So they make a little boat. He goes out and he puts it in the gutters, and he chases it, and he's having a fun time. And he loses track of it, and it goes down a storm drain. Little Georgie looks inside that storm drain, and there's a fucking clown there, just being all friendly. And I'm like, okay, hey, uh, can I get the clown? They talk, it's all funny, fun and games. And then the clown just bites his goddamn arm off and drags him to the sewer where he almost certainly dies. And then we cut to a few little later where, you know, Georgie's brother Bill and all of his loser friends are getting made fun of and it's, it's summer, it's summer vacation. And there's another group of losers of Bev and Ben. Bev is a girl who has a reputation as a slut, which isn't really earned, but, you know, kids are fucking awful. And Ben, who's the new kid, and he's fat. This is really key to his character, is that he's fat, and <laughs> he gets so much shit for it. Um, and, of course, there's Mike, the homeschooled black kid who lives on a farm, 
who's dealing with the fact that he lives in a fucking racist town, and he's afraid of violence. Um, so they all start, you know, off their summer, and weird shit begins happening to each of them, usually revolving with some nightmarish imagery um, and a threat, in addition to a fucking clown that is also in their nightmarish imagery based on their deepest fears. Um, and as all of this fucked up stuff happens to them, they <laughs> come together and realize what's going on, that there's some nasty, monstrous creature that has been killing people and taking children. Because in this town of Derry, children have been going missing for the entire year, to the point there's a curfew. And in a wonderful detail, the film makes sure to have... Uh, they're actually just putting up missing kid signs over the previous missing kid sign because it's just like a, a feature as opposed to a flaw. Um, and so the kids have their decide they want to go hunt the monster of Pennywise, the dancing clown, it. Um, they go hunting for it. They have their first flawed encounter. And then they kind of break up their friendships. And then the clown takes Bev to its clown lair, you know, as clowns are wont to do, and they team up once again to go and destroy it once and for all. Track it down to the sewer, um, use the power of friendship and belief to get rid of their fear, and fight the clown, and they presumably kill it once and for all. I mean, it's not like there's a chapter two that's going to happen in a few years, so I think we can all say that it is dead forever and will never come back in any form whatsoever. Sounds about right. But just in case, <laughs> just in case, they all swear a blood oath that if it comes back, they'll all come back and kill it. Yes, just to be safe. Just to be on the safe side. <laughs> Bunch of paranoid kids. Thank you for that, Matt. It's a great summary. And, uh, yeah, no, that's... That's about it. A uh, couple details. Eh, not really anything I'd add, because it's all talk about the details and the spooks and all that good stuff, so I think that's probably just going to go to the next section. Sounds, Sounds great to me. Alright, so, time for the initial incision. Now we begin the initial incision. Alright, so, Matt. What are some strengths of this movie? What blew you away? Because I got some stuff to talk about, and, uh, well, we're just going to have to go back and forth, because I think we were both gushing about oh, this one. Oh, we definitely were. As much as the people gush in this fucking movie, because it is bloody as hell. Uh, it's very um, gushy. Okay, a strength of this movie is that it is, when I said, like, I didn't realize it was two hours and 15 minutes long, it's because this movie is phenomenally paced. It isn't. It doesn't feel like a traditional Hollywood horror movie of building up to scares and then, like you know, having the relief of the scare or the consequence of the scare, and then letting it, you know, a chill out moment and then building up to the next one. It just seamlessly moves from scare to scare with almost no build up whatsoever, and I thought that was so enlightening, not enlightening, but so pleasing to me in particular. Because that's an element of horror I love, is the inexplicable. Is if you just have horrifying stuff happening, regardless of whether anyone notices or not. 
in this film, like it moves from one kid encountering it to the next kid immediately countering it with no like uh, trigger. It's just like, oh yeah, bad stuff starts happening, and it's nothing you can do about it. Awesome. Uh, I think my highlight, my first highlight, the first thing I want to bring up is Beverly. And we're going to have to come back to this in Deep Cuts, because Beverly is a weird character in terms of, like, history and, you know, like, kind of, like, the way she interacts with, like, the damsel tropes and so on. But I will say, I will say here that uh, Sophia Mm -hmm. Lillis did an amazing performance. She's, you know, very beautiful. She does that, like, creeping half-smile great. And the way she's portrayed in the script, I think, is fantastic. There are maybe some small problems with it, and all of this is going to be subjective bullcrap, but I really enjoyed her character in this film. And she was subject to some of, I think, the most intense scares in the whole Oh, for sure. Uh, (laughs) The scene where, you know, she's held over the sink and blood pours over her is just terrifying and visceral and her dad is the scariest monster in the entire accurate movie. yeah just yep. straight yep, up yep, yep. um so i mean we're, i think i think we're gonna have a lot of gushing a lot of just oh this scene was so cool so let's real fast try and you know do the sandwich theory and go for a little bit of quick criticism was there anything in this that was kind of weak? uh kind of weak uh because like i said it was so streamlined despite being two hours to 15 minutes some of the kids got more characterization than others um, this it kind of is formatted like a peanut strip where they only show adults uh, when they need to. So you don't actually encounter Bill and Georgie's parents. Uh, same thing with uh, you know, Richie's parents. The only people, the only adults who show up in the film are one-dimensional monsters, which is fine in the context of this movie. This is a movie about kids. And so it focuses almost entirely on the kids. But... It's not a TV miniseries. We don't get any extra flesh. So some characters get uh, left behind. One in particular is Mike. Mike, uh, we get a couple of like really key details about him in a few scenes. But the you know, details he would provide in the, in the book, um, some of that gets given to Ben. And he just kind of gets incorporated into the gang without... Um, too much, you know, interaction. I couldn't tell you how Eddie feels about Mike. I couldn't tell you how Richie feels about Mike. Whereas in the core group, I know how everybody, like, plays off of each other, which is a strength of the, you know, the group is, like, yeah, they all feel like real kids with real dynamics. But for a couple of the characters, I don't know how they actually feel about each other and how they, you know, interact with one another. Yeah, I will say, Mike is very weak. So much so that I actually find it very concerning because... He's the only, he's the black kid, first of all. But if you asked me, based just on this movie, who Mike is, I would say he's the kid who brings the bolt gun. Because I think that is his only characterization. True. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, he has his fear of fire, but let's be honest, as cool as those shots and those effects are, it basically makes him a refugee from Silent Hill. Mm. Oh, yeah, keep that, keep that for the deep cuts, because Silent Hill and it have a very strong connection to each other, and I'm going to feel lovely about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, so one thing I will say for something that I found kind of critical is this movie didn't... I was blown away. The fr- I saw this twice in theaters, and I was blown away the first time. 
absolutely blown away. But the second viewing was not quite as good. And it was still very, very good. I was still really enjoying myself. But a big part of, I think, what made this special for me, the first time seeing it, was being so distant from the source material and also being unsure just based on not knowing what was coming because it was a new production and I had no firm news on whether or not they were going to do, you know, the intercutting adult story or all that. And just the uncertainty. So seeing it with no spoilers and not knowing what was coming, the suspense was much more visceral. And while it was still good and well shot and well spooked the second time going around, it didn't grip me to quite the same degree. And that's not necessarily that harsh of a criticism, but it does kind of color where I'm coming at and looking at this film for this, you know, review and analysis. So I'm just putting that up. That's there. fair. Uh, I'm trying to think of one other thing I wasn't crazy about in this movie. Mm, I can't honestly say anything else. I really, really liked it, Doc. I really liked it. Yeah, no. Okay, I, I will say this, and this isn't a criticism so much as just a funny observation, because we're a podcast. But, God damn it, Machete, that is enough. That is enough Dutch angles. Holy oh, shit. Oh, I would argue against that. I thought the Dutch angles were fantastically applied in this one. Specifically, there's a shot where uh, it's shot at a Dutch angle as a character notices a crooked painting, and as he's... Oh, and Stanley's? Yeah, no, that's as, a great shot. No, here's the thing, though. There's a... Yeah, okay, so real fast, just to cover that shot, uh, he notices a crooked painting of a crooked woman who had a crooked sixpence and a crooked flute. No, but... Uh, so he rotates it back up, but that shot is done from the perspective of the painting, so it starts at a... Uh, it starts at a Dutch angle and then tilts back As he straightens the photo. That's great. It's and, amazing. By the way, I just want to point out a uh, fantastic little production detail is because this is happening in a uh, synagogue, right? Yeah. Wait. Yeah, it's in synagogue. Yeah. And uh, there's a Star of David in a stained glass window behind Stanley. And... You'll notice that they're, the way it's patterned is it looks like Pennywise's eye. No, I didn't catch that. Yeah, because it, it's it's a white outer ring, and then inside the hexagon, there's a yellow-orange hexagon, and then, like, a dark piece of, like, burgundy stained glass uh, in the middle. That's... It's so, so good. Okay. I'm going to come back to strengths for a while. The Crooked Woman oh, is amazing. Okay, listeners, I want you to know, I was making that noise for most of this movie. Just my girlfriend sitting next to me as I'm like, oh. Like, I almost got kicked out of the theater, I'll tell you. Yeah. You know, it was an ill-appropriate yeah. thing. Was the Crooked Woman in the original? No, like, I don't remember her from the movie. And No, I believe no? the Crooked Woman is an invent- er, invention for the movie, as was uh, Ben's Fear. Because, again, the book is very interesting in the sense of, like, I read it last year. Uh, I reread it last year. I read it when I was 13 years old, as everyone should. Um, but I read it last year, and most of the monsters and deep fears, as opposed to, like, the... There's a few that are, like, you know, psychologically based. Um, but most of the monsters are from the movies of the time. And so it's kind of absurd, but it's a... Like the werewolf scene, which kind of happens here, has it turning into a nightmare version of I was a teenage werewolf and chasing them down in a, as a werewolf and wearing a letterman's jacket while 
uh, Mike's fear of, you know, in the movie, it's the people trying to escape from a burning building, which is kind of a riff on the burning of the black spot from the book and also the movie, but here it's applied to his parents. Um, he's afraid of a pterodactyl, and he's, you know, stalked by an evil pterodactyl in the book. And, you know, when you say these things out loud, they don't seem scary, but that's the strength of Stephen King's storytelling is he takes these very childish fears and childish, you know, paranoias and makes them into something truly upsetting, which is the essence of horror, really. Okay, and I just, I, I do want to gush about the, and actually, the CGI in this movie is really good, too, in that it controls, its, it controls itself well. It's about managing how you do it, and, like, I'm an animation guy, so I notice a lot of things about this, but the Crooked Woman in particular looks like obvious CGI in such a way that it feels unreal yes. and disturbing. Like, it's creepy. And by the way, I don't know if you made this connection, but you know what, 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 you know what the cro crooked... You know what the crooked lady reminds me of? The scream? Well, that too, but also King Ramsey. The man in Gaz. The man in Gaz. The man in Gaz. Return the slime. You get, you get that, right? Oh, yes. I can see that, yeah. That definitely scared yeah. more children than it had any right to. Oh, yeah. And here, I will also say, the Crooked Lady is part of one of my favorite shots. Is when they... Later in the movie, you know, she's over Stanley, biting his face, and then the kids come and chase her off. And the, the Crooked Lady is Pennywise. All of it is Pennywise, and all of Pennywise is it. So all the monsters are the same thing. But... As the crooked lady, Pennywise retreats into a sewer pipe and leaves the hand on the edge. And you're thinking, oh, you're going to see the hand like release finger by finger and fade into the pipe. But no, the hand stays there on the edge of the pipe and then Pennywise oh. comes out. So it feels like a costume change and it really sells that kind of playful nature. And also, the crooked lady has the most amazing, knowing, terrifying smile. Yeah, she is upsetting. That's, again, this is the word I'm going to be using for most of it that I love is that it's upsetting is it presents you with just straight up. It doesn't like lead into the creep. It just starts off having something that's just not right. It's wrong. You look at it and it doesn't feel like it's a part of the scenery. It feels like something alien and just doesn't belong there. The crooked lady is one of it. The, the, you know, uh, the scene where Mike, you know, first encounters Pennywise, which is very early into the movie, and we haven't even met Pennywise outside of the sewer grate, it just happens. It just, you know, one door starts smoking, and charred hands try and come out as people scream on the other side of a door. And, like, there's no indication that this is going to happen, it just happens. But it's just an yeah. upsetting... It's full of upsetting imagery and scenery, but you're gushing about the crooked woman... And she, one of the, her scenes has one of the best strengths of this film, which is that, you know, diegetic versus undiegetic sound. I don't oh, remember yeah. which is which, but there's the sound. Diegetic sound comes from the fiction. Non-diegetic sound comes from right. the movie. The film constantly blends undiegetic and diegetic to keep you on edge as opposed to whether something's real or something's, you know, not real. Um, it's catered to both the children and to us, the viewer. 
So that little that little riff of exactly. is terrifying. The, you know, he's in the synagogue's room. He's putting away the thing. He's straightened the photo. He's straightened the portrait. The crooked woman's gone missing. And then you know we hear the score in the background, but then a flute is added to the score, and we're reacting to it of like, oh, that's new. <coughs> Excuse me. We're reacting it, saying, oh, that's new. And Stanley also starts looking because he can hear the flute. And the lines between the viewer and the main character are blurred as to who's this thing that the sound is even going for. And, and most of the, the it's, uh, not hauntings, but the int- interactions um, have a feature of diegetic sound just showing up mixed perfectly with the score. And it's fantastic. Oh, can I just say... The, and this is also another one of my favorite souks because it does a great job of setting up like a false expectation because what I was expecting to happen and you can tell me if you were expecting this or if you were just in with it totally but you know you see the spooky painting he corrects it he puts the book away he comes back to it because the painting's fallen off the wall and he puts it up and at this point what I'm expecting is that it's gonna be a picture of Pennywise but no the painting is blank and she's behind him with the flute. And that's great because I was expecting something completely different and it came back and whammy. Yeah. Did, did that happen uh, for you? Or were, were you just like, she's well, going to be missing? I didn't think she was going to be missing. I didn't think uh, it was going to be Pennywise. It was an entirely new scene because this wasn't in the book. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and so I was just rolling with it. It was, uh, I saw it had fallen down and I didn't know what was going to happen. It shoots from... Again, the painting's perspective when he's putting it back up, um, and he's not reacting to it. Um, and it's not until we cut to his perspective afterwards, after he's hung the photo, or the hung the painting, that we see that it's empty. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Yeah. But I thought the choice to have her outside of the painting was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see, what else? Like, there are so many good spooks in this. Yes. Just so many. We could gush about this for a while. I will say, I love... Okay, I, I'm going to say one big spook. One one big thing to compliment here, because I think it is real strength, is Bill Skarsgård is incredible in this. Uh, with the prosthetic for the big bulbous head, he's seven feet tall. And he has just this amazing screen presence. And, you know, he fills the room and just... Even when he's standing perfectly still, he has these really expressive eyes and, like, this brow that can be up and give him these really round, childish eyes like he has in the sewer grate. Or just this completely dead face, serious glare. Or, like, the, the way they do the split eyes, like the kind of lazy eye effect, is just really disconcerting. Just every time that he's on screen, I'm having a good time. Maybe he's not always scary, but he's always compelling. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And I just learned this. Uh, that wasn't a special effect. It was the... Bill Skarsgård can Bill actually Sk- do that. Again, the, so Machete was you know telling him that he wanted to have one eye on the character and one eye on the viewer watching the screen. And it's like that was what they were going to do in post. And Bill Skarsgård says, I can do that by myself. And then he 
Like, it's like, oh, thank you, Bill Skarsgård. You just saved me, like, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in special effects. Because every time, you know, his eyes will roll in the back of his head or start floating like flotsam. Um, and that's special effects. But when one eye is focusing on the person on the screen and one eye is focusing on you, the terrified person in the theater, that's 100% just legit. Pennywise can see yep. you. Yes, you. Yep. And well, we can hear the... I did not actually notice that it was focusing on the camera. I, I would love to watch it again and keep an eye out for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, no, but he's great. And also, I love the blend of kind of CGI and practical effects. Uh, in particular, like, some standout scenes are the... When he unfolds himself from the closet... Oh. Or uh, when he comes out of the projector. By the way, I love that scene because that scene was in one of the trailers and that was one of the ones that really sold me on, okay, this movie's going to be yep. pretty cool. But there was so much more to that scene than what was in the, was in the trailer. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, Bill Skarsgård, you said like he had such a presence and that's 100%. He was, I, can, I was on the fence because I hated the last thing I saw him in, the only thing I've ever seen him in. And Tim Curry... You know, while most of us have most of us have seen the uh, film, the TV show, and some of us like we all have like kind of like out uh, oversized memories of it, because usually like when you revisit it now, it's not as good or not as frightening as you remember. Um, but the reason why we all remember it as terrifying is that Tim Curry rocked the goddamn house in that show. And we all remember Tim Curry's Pennywise. And so I was, you know, hesitant about, you know, Bill Skarsgård Pennywise. How are you going to top that? And this was less an ad, you know, remake of the TV series as it was just an adaptation of the book. And this Pennywise was right. It was like a correct adaptation of Pennywise. Both, you know, seductor of the innocent and just alien presence. He flops around like a meat puppet and it's just not right. He, he doesn't feel right, which is makes him right for the movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I do like that because you can see kind of a gradual descent of inhumanity to him because at the beginning, the first thing we're introduced to him is when he's meeting Georgie and he is actually sweet faced and innocent and baby like in that and I think that's something that Curry never quite gotten as as far as I remember. Feel free to correct me on this, but like he never felt like a friend. No, clown. like he never felt like that facade had. A he purpose. seemed like a clown who threw a pie and, in your face, at, at best. Yeah, and the, in that first scene when he's got the blue eyes, and I love the changing of the blue and the yellow eyes. He genuinely seems like. You and I know that there's something beyond that. You and I are adults who have that context to say, there's a fucking clown in the fucking sewer. Get the fuck out, Georgie. But Georgie's like this little, what, like nine-year-old kid? I can absolutely see how he could be seduced by Pennywise uh, here. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Clowns are funny, folks. I like clowns. Well, you're a rare breed these days. They have such floppy shoes. Yeah. Also, I love the little bell jingle whenever he moves his head quickly. Oh, dude. There was just... Uh, 
I don't think there's a bell on his costume. It's just something they added in post. But it really, like, kind of roots it into, like, every sense. Yeah, and also, he's not on the screen as often as you think he'd be. There's, uh... This is strange. What this movie does that the TV series didn't... Okay, no, we're not going to phrase it like that. What this movie does that a lot of horror movie doesn't is it doesn't waste a whole lot of time talking about stuff. Pennywise never threatens the kids. Pennywise isn't like doesn't take center stage. When he's horrifying or terrifying people or stalking them, he adopts the form that they find most frightening. It's not until the you know the final scene and the final act that you know Pennywise starts like monologuing at all. Um, and he doesn't really monologue so much as he bargains. Exactly. Which I like. um, whereas, you know, most things they kind of explain what their entire deal is. You never know what it actually is all about, ever. And like, you know, it doesn't... Yeah. And actually, that's one thing I do like. Even he does do a little bit of monologuing, particularly when he's catching mm-hmm. Richie out. But also, there is a purpose to that because he's invoking yes. fear. You know, like, he, he, he's going like... He's not just saying, mm, Yes, it is I, Pennywise the Clown. I eat fear. Delicious. Mm-mm. Very nutritious. Then he's going... He's holding his face and... <laughs> Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. You know? He's getting off on it. Like, there yes. is purpose to it. And he's oh, torturing yeah. the kid who's because he's got the broken arm. And he's... Oh, God. That, oh, that, oh that, that makes me uncomfortable. Yes. Just, anytime you have a, a forearm bent at, like, 45 <laughs> degrees like that, yeah. Ah. <laughs> oh, oh, such a good movie. Oh, no. So, I think this actually segs very well into... You know, some deep cuts. But I do want to say one last highlight. One last highlight I really like is Beverly's oh. dad. Because holy shit, the moment that... Like, first of all, he's terrifying on his own. He's the greatest monster. Well, you want to tell the film. viewers, just in case they're spoiler addicts who haven't actually seen the movie, what her deal is? Okay, it's very heavily implied that Beverly's dad is has either, like, raped or molested her. It's not dived into, really, but there's just this aura of menace around him. And, like, you know, Beverly's room is well lit, so is kind of the bathroom to a certain degree, but, like, he lives in darkness. And just just the most chilling scene when he comes in and, you know, she's covered in blood and he can't see it, and, you know, he says, you know, why did you do that to your hair? It makes you look like a boy. And he's always asking you, you know, uh, are you still my little girl? And he's got that, like, it's plausibly rooted in, you know, it's like that kind of old-timey, you know, ten rules to date my daughter thing. But the longer it goes on, the more menacing he becomes. And it becomes clear that at, at one point, before before she attacks him in self-defense and gets away from him, he doesn't say, are you still my little girl? He says, are you still my girl? And he's just so menacing. And when Pennywise comes up... And he doesn't change, he just changes his head. It's just Beverly's father's head on Pennywise. And he looks up at her and says, are you still my little girl? The scene stops. She she stabs him in the throat and it's great. But for that half second, like, I don't even know if, like, the music or everything's up. But, like, the rhythm just grinds to a halt. And that is an amazing cut. Final report. The cause of death. So, Matt, you were you were about to dive into a deep cut. Okay. Go for it. Deep Go hogs. So, 
we're going to talk about the principles of horror, or at least applications of horror, and things that work better than others. And this is where I say weird things. If you read my blog, you might have heard about this a few times. But I love when kids die. Kids dying in a horror movie <laughs> is the sort of thing that shows that this is a no-holds-barred, no-fucks-given, anything-can-happen movie. There's only a handful of directors who actually have the balls to do it, and apparently Machete is one of them. Uh, you're going to find in the Guillermo del Toro movie, there's a... If it's a horror movie from Guillermo del Toro, a kid is probably going to die. And you're not going to have any idea who is safe. In a traditional Hollywood horror movie, kids are sacred, animals are sacred. They, no one is going to get hurt. Uh, in it, it starts off with the... You know, the scene of it, which is Georgie's death, that sets the tone for the entire movie, the entire story, and just the lack of safety for everyone. And Georgie gets his arm bitten off by a clown in the sewer, and then the book bleeds out on the street. In the movie, he goes missing, and no one is sure whether he's dead or not. And rather than cutting to a reaction or cutting to a side of the street or hearing his scream... We see it all happen. We see Pennywise's mouth turn into a maw, bite into his arm, and the little child, you know, maybe a kindergartner, a first grader, very young kid. Um, I think he's like nine. Sure. I, I don't know how kids work. You know, a small child. Uh, just on the street... Saving Private Ryan style, walking as like blood pours out of the stump where his arm used to be, screaming for help as the blood mingles into the street and getting dragged down into the sewer grate and like the, you know the stain on the street of where his blood is left. And that is so fucking metal. There is no safety. There's no co what a compassion in this universe. We know that awful things yeah. can happen. That's, that's something I want to say there, is that is the scene that made me sit up and pay attention. Because, and, and here's the thing, like, I haven't read the book, and I don't specifically remember, but uh, you say in the book his arm got yes. bitten off as well? Okay, because did that happen in the original movie, the original TV series? Because I don't think it did. I don't remember that scene. In the original show, or the original TV series, miniseries, um... It cuts, they show his Pennywise uh, face changing into a face of fangs. Which, you know, we've probably seen that scene of just Tim Curry with, you know. Yeah, yeah, where he just goes, like, he kind of has an orgasm. And yes, he's got exactly, the and then it cuts to, like, the next scene as the kid screams. Because, uh, you know, that's traditional yeah, how you do so. That, that, that is what, yeah, because that's one thing I really loved about this is Pennywise was both more and less real. Yes than he was as Tim Curry. And the physicality and the brutality of just going straight for the cut, and not only just biting, not just the biting of the arm, because, you know, you could expect, oh, he bites the arm and he drags him to the sewer. No, he bites him, and then the kid's crawling away with a stump. Yep. That was like, whoa, okay, um, new ball game, new ball oh, game. Yes. <laughs> and that is what the story that this movie, uh, just, uh, I'm not saying this right. New ball game, great. Yeah, that was an example of you know the attitude that this movie takes towards the violence and the horror. 
is that awful things will and do happen to the kids, and we see it all. It's a story about it's a story about children, and it focuses on the kids, and we see the consequences of that violence. Oh yeah, uh, I will say this. I think one scene that really sells that aesthetic, and is I think surprisingly important that not a lot of people are going to be thinking about, but is the scene where Henry Bowers carves an H into Ben's stomach. Because that is just, there's no hesitation, there's no flinching, it's just, he just goes at him with a knife. And that, I think, is actually, like, that's one of the more fucked up things that kind of gets lost in the glitz and the glamour of, oh, spooky clown, headless boy. Yeah, for sure. It's, that is what Stephen King is all about. It's supernatural horror and then totally mundane horror of, you're gonna have a parasitic creature that feeds on fear and you're also going to have sexual abuse you're also going to have you know not just regular abuse that's led to someone becoming a fucking sociopath and just hurting people there's just so much in every one of his books of you know there's layers to each of the horror and it never relies on it doesn't always never rely that there's layers to each of the horror elements and each one is as strong as the other. Okay, so Matt, I want to ask you a question here. Um, because I, I think we, we've kind of ducked around this a little bit with the question of adaptation versus the original versus the book versus the miniseries. So just, like, as someone who's, I think, more plugged into this than I am, can you just give me some, like, more direct thoughts on how you think this sits versus the miniseries and versus the book? Who? So, because okay. one thing, okay. sorry, because one thing I notice is this one, this, the book is so dense. There's so much going on that there's no way that this really captures it in fullness, mm -hmm. even though it feels like it captures maybe more and maybe in certain ways less than the TV series. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that and how that's going, like as the king authority <laughs> among us? Well, it's, it changes a lot and it is very different while still... Somehow, paradoxically, as I'm saying, it's like the most accurate spiritual adaptation. Uh, the book the, is set in the 1980s and the 1950s. All of the childhood segments in which we deal with the, loser game, the Losers Club um, is set in the 50s. Whereas this adaptation, everything you know, where the kids are kids, is set in the 1980s. 1988, to be exact. And so... It, you know, other than, you can't have everything happen identically uh, in the 50s as it does in the 80s. And this one takes a lot of liberties with it. But where I think that succeeds is, it came out in the, you know, 1990. The book came out in 1998, or 1988. Um, and so when people were first reading it, it was the 80s. It felt like the 80s. Um, if you were a kid reading it, it was in the 90s or the 80s. Uh, and so by, you know, kicking the adaptation into setting it in the 1980s, um, that's when its primary, you know, viewership were children. <coughs> Excuse me. That's when its primary viewership were children. And so it feels right, even though it wasn't necessarily accurate to the book. If you can transplant of the sense of childhood that this movie captures, um, 
by just dialing it to 1980 and changing all the elements of that, we will identify with it because our memories of the book are all there. So what you're kind of saying here is it's spirit, but not letter exactly. of the law, so to speak. Yes, it's specifically okay. the spirit of the law. Uh, now, actually, this leads me to a question, because one thing I, I'm catching with your little summary here is primary audience as children. Now, do you think horror... Like, I, I'm curious where you're thinking horror kind of exists as something for children, for adults, for teenagers. Because, like... I think definitely, like, if you want to look at the miniseries, for example, that was a hard R. Like, that was not something kids were no. supposed to see. But this seems to be something that you're saying is part of the experience of how you contextualize oh, yeah. it. It is a... So, first of all, horror people are different from everybody else. Horror people seek things out. Um, when you hear people talk about It, the miniseries, you're not usually talking to, like, you know, 50-year-olds... Who were like, yeah, that was a TV series I watched. You know, it wasn't as good as V, but it was pretty okay. They don't contextualize it as that. It's a, I was a kid, and I watched it on ABC at like 9 o'clock when my folks were in the other room watching The Price is Right. Or whatever the heck shows on network television. I'm not quite plugged into that anymore. But we seek things out, and it is one of those landmark elements of not the horror community, but just horror in general, is that people have these really deeply attached memories of that movie series, or that TV series, the TV movie. Um, and it's like often thing, it's like the scariest thing of all time, even though it really doesn't hold up as well as you'd like to think. But it is like a psychologically, you know, uh, marking moment, the sort of thing that uh, baby ducks do on people, imprinting. It's a psychologically imprinting moment. Where a lot of people get their fear of clowns from it. Not from anything else, just from it. Uh, and Really? Not from Poltergeist? Well, no! A lot of people nowadays haven't seen Poltergeist. That's true. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious, because one thing I'm kind of getting from this is that you feel like there is maybe like kind of the bonus level, like the last 5% that makes horror really stick with you is kind of that element of transgression almost, you know, like this idea of like kids sneaking into an R-rated movie. Oh, for sure. This is a, it is a story about children and then later them as adults. However, when I say like, this is like, you, you should read it as a 13 year old. It's not a book that's meant for a 13 year old. It's about junior high kids and bad stuff happens to them, and then they turn into adults, and bad stuff happens to them. Um, however, if you are like a child in reading this stuff, then the more, not risque, but the weirder, more frightening things of I was a teenage werewolf chases them down, doesn't strike you as funny or outdated or ironic. It just strikes you as terrifying. Uh, you know, kids go out of their way to find this stuff. You stay up, when I was a kid, I would stay up late at night and try and, like, catch, well, softcore porn. But in addition to softcore porn, uh, <laughs> horror movies on HBO and Cinemax and Showtime, and that's where, like, I got my first interaction with some of my favorite horror flicks was just, you know, I wasn't supposed to be watching it, but I watched it, and I loved it. And some of these things aren't high art, but they are enjoyable. And, you know, 
earlier exposure can develop a love for horror. And it, again, like I said, is a landmark. You, if you're a kid, you're like, I want to read a horror book. What's the horror book? You're not going to say Dracula. You're not going to say Frankenstein. You're like, what has the reputation as being scary as fuck? It. I'm going to read it. Or I'm going to watch it. <clears throat> and in this movie, it's because it centers on kids and it centers on the things that frighten them and the fucked up things that happen in their regular lives, as a child, you can resonate with it a lot more than the adult can. The adult can probably get it more, but it's not going to you know, land with them or frighten them the same way that a kid who can put themselves in the shoes of any one of the losers in the Losers Club can. Yeah, and I will say that. I think this what this movie did very well that I don't think really stands out to me from the original miniseries is this movie feels like it is not only about children, but from a perspective of yep. children. Uh, in particular, I think one thing that really sells that is how big Bill Skarsgård is compared to the children. Like, if the children are on screen with him, they're generally looking up at him. Um, in particular, I think, like, the scene where he's with Eddie, I think, in mm-hmm. the house, and he does, like, this silly little clown strut. <laughs> and it, it that should be goofy as shit, but you've got this downward... Not like this down-low, down upward camera angle at him. And it's kind of terrifying because he fills the entire screen and he's so high above Eddie who's on his back on top of being smaller than him. Um, not only that, and like I say there's probably too many Dutch angles in this and I still stand by that to a certain degree. A lot of them are really effective and I think a couple of them are kind of superfluous. But um, there's a couple shots in particular where they use that... And it gives that feeling of, like, being a kid and not being really steady on your feet. In particular, in the lair with Bev. Like, she wakes up, and then she's moving, and she's, like, stumbling in the water. And that's in a Dutch angle. And that feels like, you know, the floor is slanted, and it's dragging her towards it. And that really, you know, kind of sells that. That particular shot Mm -hmm. for me. Um, Not only that, but I've heard... I've tried to avoid the discourse for the most part to kind of come to this fresh, but I haven't been able to avoid it entirely. And one thing I've heard is, like, that kind of, like, cinema sinsy, oh, why don't you tell the adults? Like, kind of logic hole, plot hole digging. And I think to a certain point in this movie that doesn't matter because it's kind of established this idea of you, the audience and the characters are children and no one's going to fucking believe you. And it's established very early on when Bill meets his dad. is like, stop digging, stop doing. He's dead. There's nothing you can do. You know, there is no recourse for these kids to deal with things through the authorities. Every single adult we see is part of the problem. Absolutely. So this idea that, you know, oh, just leave it alone. Get a go. This idea that the kids are isolated and don't have an authority figure to turn to is baked into the very DNA of this movie. For sure. And it's a nightmarish experience. The kids are either alone or together as the losers. There's no divisions between them. You can't rely on anybody else but the kids. And the film isn't shot as in... Uh, like, that was the thing I found so pleasing, is it never had anything that wasn't you know core to these characters. And because they're specifically, they are kids. It was almost like, you know, like, yeah. the And one thing... You know what's one thing I really what's like? That? 
the leper. Oh, yes. And I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, because here's what the leper feels like. The leper feels like something out of an, like, an American werewolf in London, for example. It feels like practical effect. It looks fake. Yes. But it looks fake in such a way that it looks like it's from, like, this kind of specific aesthetic of film. So when Eddie's running from it, I believe that, like, Eddie saw something like this in a movie and it's combined with his own, like, kind of hypochondriac tendencies to invoke and project more fear onto this creature than the creature actually exists. That's another element of horror I'm going to bring up, and that is the so fake it's real. Uh, The only movie that's ever made me gag is Night of the Living Dead. I've seen Eli Roth stuff, not that crazy about it, but I've seen, like, you know, the nasty things where someone gets their head cut off, and it's CGI, and it looks real, and we know it's fake because it looks real. Um, however, in Night of the Living Dead, you got black and white photography, and we're seeing a bunch of zombies eat a guy. And when they're eating a guy, they're pulling, what is it, Italian sausage that's been boiled, and, like, chicken gizzards. And that's what we're seeing that they're pulling out of a guy. And I know what Italian sausages look like. I know what chicken gizzards look like. And that's why I know what they're pulling out of him. And it's so fake. I know it's not actually like intestines and all that jazz. But because it looks so fake, I know for a fact that, well, maybe it, maybe they, it is intestines. Maybe that is person juice. I mean, it doesn't look like I think people juice would look like. But maybe that's the case. In it, everything looks... uh, All of the hauntings or all the aspects of it look kind of absurd. They look dialed up to 11. They look kind of fake. They don't look as if they were photorealistic uh, depictions as, you know, someone would see, but rather the hyped-up imagination of a kid. And so it's like, well, that looks goofy that looks dumb i know that's not real but does that mean it could be real hmm this actually okay i'm curious for your take and i'll 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 link this thought in a second but i'm curious as to your take on henry bowers yes henry bowers oh so what my take okay i'll jump straight into that i what so henry bowers is the bully in the movie in case you didn't know and Henry Bowers is a classic Stephen King bully of mentally impaired, uh, psychotic person who's only exists to cause pain. Um, in a Stephen King film or a Stephen King book, a bully is not someone who's like you know, kind of nice on the inside and you know takes pictures of tropical fish. Their entire thing is I'm gonna like find a kid. I'm going to take him to the back of the woods. I'm going to carve my name into the belly. I'm probably going to rape him. And then I'm going to slit their throat. And that's going to be the end of the day. Because that's who the person I am. Every bully in a Stephen King story is just the worst person imaginable. And here, Henry Bowers is pretty fucking close to that. He's definitely off his rocker. He's the victim of abuse himself. Because his dad, the sheriff uses psychological abuse and definitely, in the past, physical abuse to just, you know, beat discipline into the boy or beat obedience to the boy. And so he takes it out on everyone else around him. Um, but because Derry is a godforsaken hellhole, um, 
Henry is influenced by it to do its bidding, which involves him stabbing his father and going on a kill spree of the loser club, or attempting to. Uh, yeah. I really loved his design, is that he doesn't initially look like Pennywise at all, but during the rock fight, he takes that one... Oh yeah, no, he's covered in blood and he's smiling and just right. breaking. And he, he looks like Pennywise in that. Okay, because here's the thing about Henry Bowers, is I kind of didn't dig him at first because he felt very two-dimensional and, you know, like, needlessly psychotic. But when you were making your comments about kind of how children see things in this, is it kind of makes a lot more sense when you consider that you're seeing this from the loser's perspective. Um, I didn't hear sorry? What, oh, sorry, you were saying that he looks fucked up because it's from a loser's perspective? Yeah, no, because one thing that kind of hit me the wrong way about this movie the first time, and a little bit during the second time, was that Henry Bowers was too psychotic. He was too one-dimensional, too filled with rage, and not he didn't feel like a human character. And to... That, that, to a certain degree, the so fake it's real argument you made kind of made me reconsider that you were looking at this bully from the perspective of his victims and from the perspective of children who tend to see things in very simple terms. So in that way, do you think that's a deliberate choice by the director to frame him like that? Because at seeing it and having the default assumption when I'm seeing a film that I'm seeing some kind of objective reality... Henry Bauer strikes me as like, this kid should be locked up, this kid should not be part of society. Uh, the fact that he is allowed to interact with these kids at all, that he's faced very little punishment, is like a major failure of the system. And it kind of takes me out of it. Uh, so with the, that's one of the things about this film that uh, makes it kind of hard to be objective about. Because a lot of its strengths and failures... You know, can be attributed to Machete, but also attributed to King. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, we can revisit this later. But one of the great things is Bev's uh, it manifestations are blood and hair, which are both to her symbols of sexuality or her own like upcoming like you know womanhood, as well as symbols of her sexual abuse by her father. Um, those are things that she's deeply afraid of. Is you know sex. And, you know, menstrual blood, because it's a sign that she's fertile, which is a reminder that she's being abused by her father. And the hair, which her father likes, and it's a sign of femininity, which she cuts off in a very stirring scene. Um, And those manifest in her it haunting as things that try to kill her and, you know, harm her. Can I actually say, and I just want to throw this out there, that the scene with the scissors is almost more frightening than the blood that comes after because you're seeing someone who's viscerally upset and like i don't want to say emotional because that that sounds like it's being disparaging of being emotional but like she's very upset and she's in a very bad place mentally and she's being very aggressive with like some old-fashioned like sheer like scissors and that's like you know just for that moment like you're worried she's gonna oh yeah it's a great scene no it's a fantastic scene and I actually want to talk about Bev. And this is one of those things I'm kind of sad that Annie can't be here with us because Bev is, I think, a very interesting character in that she's in some ways very progressive and in some ways very regressive in terms of, like, you know, feminist theory and film and storytelling and all that. 
And uh, before I get too deep into my take, like, you have the context for, you know, the character historically. Because this, remember, this is a character that was written, like, 40 years ago. Yes, it was. So, you know, can I get some thoughts from you before I kind of dive into what I think feel happened in this film and kind of, you know, my conflict about well, it? Well, let me finish the, the connection between Bev and Bowers. Uh, sure, sure, sure. No, no worries. That's an amazing scene. It really works well that her manifestation is deeply personal as opposed to, like, you know, I was a teenage werewolf. Um, however, that's straight up king. That's from the text. Um, it was applied amazingly, but I can't say Manchetti is responsible for that. Uh, Manchetti is also bound to have Henry, if he wants to include Henry Bowers, to have him actually be a or psychotic schizoid who, you know is deeply broken. There's something very wrong with Henry Bowers in the text and in the movie. Uh, and that's King. You could try and remix him and change him up to be less evil because that's kind of what he is, is evil. And we get reaction shots from the kids in his gang saying like, seriously, we want to carve this guy up as opposed to just hit him? Um, but now that's how he is in the book because of King and that's how he is in the movie. Um, Okay, because that was the that was the main thing that got me was first of all like the visceral like pain of like slicing up someone's stomach that was like a step towards putting him in monster territory which I'm fine with but I I think what kind of made it dissonant for me was his friend's reaction to it which is appropriate because like holy shit what the fuck are you doing man but also like it feels like that's the moment where he just went from zero to yeah. sixty. And I, I feel like it, it's, I feel like he's established to always have been a monster, but then it's like, oh, and he just started going off the deep end just now because his friends aren't used to it. It's, it's a little weird. Cause like, even like, um, Patrick, who's, you know, playing around with the hairspray and the lighter, like you could see that as being like, hi, I'm playing with fire. I'm using this to scare people more than to actually uh -huh. hurt them. And this kid is just like, you know. You get kids, kids play with knives. You know, I had a knife when I was a kid. And you're like, oh, that's cool. But like taking a knife to someone is a whole different level. And it feels like because they put those reaction shots in there that humanized the rest of the bullies, but made it feel like there was a sudden change in Henry. Yes. Like it's, if you think of Henry as every other monster encounter in it, it kind of makes sense. Because, again, there's something very rotten in Derry. That the things that, like, in normal places would, like, you know, be taken down a notch, such as the school bully, wouldn't be actually, like, a serial killer in training. Uh, yeah. In Derry, you know, that's what happens. In Derry, I can definitely see the pharmacist who, you know, is told he looks like Clark Kent and responds to a, you know, 13-year-old girl that, oh, well... You look like Lois Lane. <laughs> yeah, that's some creepy um, shit. I could see him going out and raping a couple of teenage girls in the next few years. Because in other places, he'd just be kind of like a mildly creepy pharmacist who just says some inappropriate things. But in Derry, he would be a rapist. And that would be all in part of the general ethos of the town. Yeah. I will say, I think, because here's the thing. Uh, in particular, I think a scene that's very powerful is, you know, when 
uh, Pennywise gives him back the knife and he kills his father. You know, kill them all. Kill, oh, like, that's so a really good. cool scene. And that, that corrupting influence is very strong and very cool there. I just feel like you could explain away that kind of sudden snapping into, from, you know, like, abusive psychopathy to violent psychopathy with, like, some kind of visual cue that Pennywise is involved mm. in this. Particularly because, like, I feel like there's a lot of parallels between uh, Henry and uh, Sam Lester from Lock and Key. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but Sam Lester is explicitly influenced from the beginning, and Henry Bowers, I don't think, is shown that. And I think, and maybe that would be a departure from the text. I'm not sure, but I would have liked to see that because his, you know, unrestrained violence and psychopathy is kind of a point that takes me out oh. of the movie. Now, now, so that's maybe one note I would give, is just like, you know, put a balloon <laughs> in the background or something. That would probably make it two hours and 20 minutes if you include the scene where he rapes a cat, well, which I think is in the book. I can't remember. I don't know oh, what boy. animal he kills yeah. and then fucks. He, he's fucked up in the book. Yeah. Well, it's probably a cat, because, you know, they tried to shoot a cat in the movie. And here's the thing. I would actually, I would actually like to reorder things. If you put that scene with the gun before the scene with the knife, I think that would be very strong. Yeah, that that's a good point. I would definitely agree with that. I, I, I do think, because the scene with the cat, I feel, is a more gradual escalation. It's like, hey, it's a kid playing with a gun. It's a kid playing with power, and you're, you're showing the abusive dad. You're showing the kind of household ruled by fear. So if you had that, and it's just like, it's a simple logical progression to, I, will, I have a gun. I'm going to shoot an animal. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. You know, so that to that to knife, I think, would be a better progression of events. And also, it would give you longer to stew the resentment to the father to go to the knife. Yeah. Well, because that happens basically right before he knives him. So actually, I just think that switch would just sell that. I gotta agree. Yeah, that would make sense. I would be 100% for that. But you were talking about Bev. So let's yes, go back Bev. to Bev for a minute. Okay, so give me ah, your take on Bev. So this is where the. Advantages of this film versus the text. Uh, in the text, it's not 100% kids, then 100% adults, as this movies are going to be. In this movie, it's all kids, all the time. Whereas in the text, we start off with the grown-ass adults being reminded of it, and we kind of switch from everyone's perspective to perspective as they are in successful, but somehow fundamentally broken adulthoods. Um... And being reminded of their bad, but... I sense you are dancing around no, the scene. No, I'm not scene. dancing around the scene. I'm talking about when she's an adult, she's a successful fashion designer. But she has inadvertently married a man who is identical to her father. Who is abusive, both physically and emotionally. Um, and so, despite all of her success uh, professionally, she is fundamentally broken in her, you know, personal life. And that's a shame. But we are first introduced to Bev as a victim because she's a victim of her husband. Um, and when we meet Bev here, she has an advantage because we don't see her as an adult and see all those hopes and dreams we've learned as a kid dashed. We see her as a plucky and adventurous kid. You know, she's smart, she's... Not She's as streetwise as a 1980s kid in Maine can be. Uh, but she also has the dealing with, you know, rumors of her reputation as a slut and as a victim of, you know, sexual abuse. 
but in all the scenes prior to her getting uh, deadlighted by Pennywise, uh, she is heroic. She's like the first person to take the jump into the reservoir. She's the first person to throw a rock. I think she's the first person to throw a rock. She is the first person to throw a rock, and also she has the she's best the best mom. She has balls. She has moxie, um, and she has heart. And all the boys find her attractive, not because she's the only girl, but that definitely helps. But because that she's uh, badass and courageous, and you know, despite her victim status of you know both a victim of bullying and victim of abuse, she still manages to shine. Like, what, January fires, January embers? You know, she's fiery. She's got heart. She's got soul. And that's an advantage, I think, that movie Bev has over book Bev. Because, again, the first context of her is as a victim, as a defeated person. And we see such strength of character in Bev so that when she gets captured as a, you know, in a traditional damsel role, uh, in a feminist theory, that's probably bad. Uh, probably, but I think it kind of balances out in my personal, you know, uh, philosophy of she gets to be a badass so much before she gets deadlighted uh, that it's kind of okay that she is the reason why all the boys find the balls and find the moxie to go out and save her. Yeah. Well, I mean, here, here here's the thing. And... I think Bev in this movie is very cool. Uh, it's a wonderful performance. She's, you know, she's a strong character. And, I, like, I hesitate to use the phrase, you know, strong female character because, like, that's kind of dirtied up by a lot of people trying to, like, like, oh, if I do this, this, and this, then, you know, I can avoid criticism of having the only female role and still be the lead love interest and blah, 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 blah. But, um, and it's hard to separate how much of this is the movie how much of this is the book because here's the thing when you boil back to the book there's like that famous scene where you know they all fuck in a sewer to better remember this moment and come yes, back as it's, is tradition. it's fucked up it's weird that you know that that's that's the infamous scene I, I, of the honestly book that hasn't made it that, to either movie he adaptation. who has not fucked in the sewer at 11 years old cast the first stone okay <laughs> and like here, that that's kind of why I'm having this kind of complex stumbling block over the character of Bev, because this is a character written 40 years ago. And, like, e- even with all that, she's still, like, a victim to be saved. But also, there's all this counterbalancing stuff. Like you said, she's strong, she's badass, she's beautiful. And, you know, like, when she breaks the toilet lid over her dad's head, that's an amazing oh, yes. scene. But she is still, I think, as an overall character defined by victimhood and by being, you know, not quite a trophy, but also there's... And here's an interesting thing. I saw this the first time I saw it, like, premiere night. It was a Thursday. Not a lot of people were there. I saw it again on a Friday night, and there were a lot of people there, and there was a lot of laughter and comedy and people going, ooh, when you're doing that whole love triangle between her, Ben, and Bill. And, like, that's the kind of stuff where... That's where I'm starting to go, please don't make this about her affections and being the girl of the group and so on. And that's kind of where I'm, like, 
hesitant to, to where I'm more than the victim stuff because I think the victim stuff is handled yeah. well and is a compelling part of the narrative. But this whole like you know she's the only girl and all the boys like her thing. That's where I feel it's more aggressive, and that I think that's less on her as a character and as an actress and as a performance, and more on the boys actually and the script and the direction. See, well, that is where I get to have the smile on my face when I say it's about kids. They're kids. Kids do this shit. Yeah. Like I remember having a crush on like the only girl I associated with when I was a wee little lad. And like when the scene where they're all, where she's wearing her underwear and all the boys are wearing their underwear and kind of looking at her. And like the only difference is that, yeah, she's a girl, we're boys. And you know what? That's pretty honest. That's like, yeah, it's not like, oh, boys will be boys. Like, look, no, there are aspects of childhood and like burgeoning sexuality that this movie does well. And that character represents, and the characters represent. Um, the, as you said, the movie doesn't spell out a whole bunch because the kids don't spend much time talking about their feelings for one another. It relies on shots and like you know reactions to things that characters are seeing and hoping, uh, and like so that's how all that is communicated, and I, I thought it does it pretty well, but. In terms of the book, we were talking about the you know the infamous fucking scene. It's not the best. I wouldn't put it in there if I was making an edit to it. No. Uh, but like having Bev as like a beacon, I think works because. Oh, this is a, here's the thing. What I was saying is like this works best if you're reading it at thirteen as a kid. If you're thirteen, yeah. And there's a scene in which all the 11-year-old characters fuck in the sewers. And at 13, you're like, well, I could have sex. That's going to happen, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that I might be able to get up with Becky and, you know, Class B over there. Or we have such, like, you know, flawed and, you know, warped ideas of what the fuck even sex means. That you don't focus on the fact that all the kids fuck in the sewers. You're focusing, you know, personally, the thing that was most shocking and, like, stuck with me as, like, transgressive was the gay guy who gets murdered in the first scene of the book. And that happens in the first, not the first scene of the book, after Georgie's murder. But set in the presence is uh, a sign of Pennywise slash its resurgence in Derry is, you know, a new spring of uh, violence. And one of it is a gay guy yeah. being murdered by a hick in the streets of Derry. And it's awful, but I was like, I was shocked because I was like, what? That happened? Like, a guy was gay and he got murdered? And his boyfriend was gay and he had a boyfriend? I don't understand this. His sexuality was hard for me to get as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's here's the last thing I'm going to say about Bev because like this isn't something that I really have a resolved stance on, so to speak. But one thing that kind of tripped me up trying to watch this movie is this idea of portrayal and kind of pose law to a certain pose degree. law. And this is going to sound weird, but hear me out here. Is um with Bev. Part of the characterization, part of the story it deals with is, you know, her and 
a child and her as, I guess, a semi-sexual uh-huh. being. You know, all the boys have crushes on her. Her dad's an abuser. She uses her feminine wiles to distract the pharmacist so the boys can steal the medical supplies and so on. And to a certain degree, you can definitely say that the story is not lampooning. That's not the word for this. But it's looking at this as like a flawed character trait or as a flawed way that the world works. Yeah, that sounds accurate. But at the same time, to portray that... The camera must, you know, almost by definition, also show it. And in doing so, it kind of, it's trying to say like, hey, look at this. But there's not, I think, sufficient framing to say, this is bad, this is fucked up, what the shit, holy fuck. I mean, you and I can infer that from that because we have a nuanced opinion on this. But, like, it's kind of portraying, like, I think probably the shot I want to call attention to here is when she joins them at the uh, at the quarry and jumps off, and you see her. She comes to the she comes to the edge of the trail. She's on her bike and she's standing there in her dress. And she takes off. She runs off. She, she takes the plunge, and <laughs> that whole sequence uh-huh. is part of like this idyllic childhood. And you see how it gets mixed up there. Is you've got this ideal childhood, which is also like you know, thirteen-year-old uh, girls taking off their dress uh-huh. in front of you. Yes. You know, it it's not quite separate. And I think, as much as you could have a nuanced and careful exploration of this, it's still gonna bleed out through the edges. Cause like, look, I wanted to find out how old she was for the sake of discussion. Oh. And when you put so when you put Sophia Lillis into Google, the first autocomplete is age. And that says something. Yeah. Like, it's... And I don't think I'm necessarily condemning or, like, making a judgment call on anything about this film or any of the production or, like, even on King, really. It's just, like, it touches on something that's complex and not that pretty. Well, so, here's my take on it. I don't hand me the authority, but it's only my interpretation. And the, the reason why I didn't have any of these issues when I was watching this film is the same reason I think I enjoyed it as much as I did. Was that... When I said this movie is for kids, it's not for kids. This is a fucked up movie. Don't let your 10-year-old watch it, okay? However, it's a movie about children. All of our main characters are children. Um, And my own framing of reading it for the very first time was as a child. Um, And most people who watched the TV series were children... People who are watching this adaptation now, who watched the TV series then, are ch- were children when they watched the first series. And so we all have that deeply, and it's a story about childhood. We have this deep association with childhood. Um, so when we watch this film, the camera, the camera's eye is a child's eye. It doesn't capture the details that, like, the adult would, you know, like need like demand they would want to know like okay so what is it what are its weaknesses what is its strengths it doesn't like focus on this it's shot in a dreamlike way of moving from scene to scene of only the good times and then the very bad times or the highs and the lows uh we focus on children we only follow children and so we're seeing the boys in their tidy whities because back then that was all you had was tidy whities 
And then the girl comes in, and she's looking so pretty, and she's wearing her underwear. And they're all jumping into the lake, or to the quarry. And it feels innocent. It has burgeoning sexuality to it, but she's not shot in a way that a swimsuit model would be shot. She's not shot as a sexualized character would be. She's shot as the girl you just saw take off her dress and have her underwear on. She's shot as a kid would see her. All of the horrific imagery is shot as a child would see it. With no build-up, it just happens, and it's always dialed up to 11. And then the fun is shot as a child would see it. it there's no build-up to it. It just happens. It's dialed up to 11. And this burgeoning sexuality is... I, I, I can't really say dialed up to 11 because that's not how burgeoning works, but it's just there. It's a factor of you know childhood is learning that boys and girls are different and you like one or you like the other. And liking one or the other gives you special feelings. And it's cute. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And I think part of this is just knowing that Annie wasn't going to be in on this episode and wanting to be careful not to approach this conversation lightly as, you know, two guys just talking about, you know, the sexuality of teenage girls, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I, I think may, it's possible I'm, I'm being too harsh about this and too critical. But also, like, I can't separate the fact that I was aware of this. And there is that history of, like, that scene is famous even to people who haven't <laughs> read the book. That is, Doc. That is. It's part of the history of the character. And this film is an adaptation. It's part of something that goes back 40 yep. years. And so it's it's interesting and it's worth talking about. And it's not something I think we can just say, oh, no, it's fine in this one, so forget about all the old stuff. That's the crazy thing about it. Uh, and you got to forgive me. I might be tangenting at this point. Um, but no matter how far you go back, it usually begins in childhood. Whether it's like, oh, yes, it starts when the book was published. And kids read it, and it's about kids. Or the TV series came out, and it was about kids, and kids watched it and this is the new movie of it doesn't include any hints at a we're lost in the sewers we need to fuck to find unity again none of that is in this movie at all and it doesn't even have an absence of it if you know what i mean like it doesn't mean like no there's there's no like space where obviously there's no space of well we gotta fuck what are we gonna do now it just you know it naturally eliminates that from its core but we're still talking about it yeah. Well, I, I, I think it, it is worth talking about because also I think they had to make the right decisions on how to handle this and how they chose to handle it. And I think they made good decisions and they handled it well. Uh, but there's still like some traces of it that in particular, I think, I, I, I don't think any, there's anything really bad about it in this film, but it's something that cannot be excised well, entirely. Well, here, I got an idea. Let's clear our palettes of the kitty gangbang. And uh, an element of horror this movie does well is the inexplicableness of the, the visuals. Shit just happens. It, oh, yeah. Nothing, there's no, like I said, I was saying there's no buildup. It just dials up to 11. The horrific imagery never starts off as kind of innocent and then grows in timbre to like a loud noise and a scare. 
it just starts off being very disturbing and continues to be disturbing until the end of the scene. And this is a thing that I love when I see its application. Uh, one of my favorite uses of this is in the video game series Silent Hill, where you're walking around a distorted nightmare universe, um, and there's just some things that are there despite you. It's not caused by you. It doesn't really care if you're in it or you interact with it, um, but it is upsetting to look at. So it says, like, an umbilical cord growing through an apartment building. It has nothing to do with you. You have no... It was there before you came onto the scene. It's going to be there... And it'll be there after you leave. It does that, you know, not quite... It's, you know, before you were there or after you were there, because it's caused by the kid's fear. But it's just as inexplicable. It's these kids walk into areas and scenarios that are... 100% 100% nightmarish, you know, from beginning to end. Oh, absolutely. I actually have one thing I want to bring up for you, uh, because I, I have this interesting read on Pennywise, because he feels both more and less real than Tim Curry did <laughs> as Bill Skarsgård, but one thing I think is very interesting, and it's not 100%, but outside of his demands, outside of his realm, outside of the sewer and outside of the house you almost never see him fully in frame. And what this gives me the impression of is he feels like a limb of something yes. else. Like he's still connected he's to the sewer. Because you see him coming around corners, you see him, you know, coming out of water, and especially with that scene where, like, the little fake Georgie flops into the water like it's a puppet yes. limb, I feel like Pennywise has that impression is that it always feels like he's... Not he's connected. Yes, to Pennywise. The only place you see him like rise into the air and see him as a standalone figure that is not visibly connected to anything is in the house and in the sewer. Pennywise is definitely the lure of an anglerfish. Uh, it's it's like in the text, it is a arachnoid creature um, at heart, but Pennywise very much in this film is depicted as kind of arachnoid. There are very subtle hits. That's why I liked his design so much, is that there's very subtle spider-like tender, or, uh, spider-like elements of his design that are like subconscious. So in the next film, when we actually see a spider, we're going to be like, oh, I see, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm actually... I'm not excited for the next I, film. I am excited because I don't know what the fuck they're going to do. Because in the, the book, yeah. the adults don't actually do a whole lot. Not a whole lot happens to them. It's mostly them remembering what happened to them as they were kids. Um, and everybody making their way to Derry to go and kill it one more time. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing. I think with the same creative team, I think we could see something really special. But I think, as is, uh, the story, from what I remember of what happened of them as adults, I don't have a lot to look forward to. So I'm, I'm, I'm tentatively excited to see what they do. But I think if it's straight King, if it's a straight adaptation, I think I have something to be worried well, about this here. one wasn't. And I think that's where I'm happy about it. Because I think yeah. that this movie strayed far enough from the source material 
to and created enough new stuff that felt right that I think a adult adaptation because the, the camera is going to have an entirely different eye if part one and part two were shot totally differently I would believe it I, I would think that would be appropriate because if you know if Age of Innocence is part one and Age of Experience is part two it's going to have a completely different ballpark and I think that could be great well, we'll I'll, I'll say this much uh, when it came up with it Chapter 1 at the end, I was like, oh, oh, shit, I forgot there's a whole second part to this. Oh, boy. Because I think in the miniseries it was intercut, yes, wasn't it? Yes, and it really messed with the pacing. Yeah, so, like, the fact that I managed to forget that there was an adult segment for the duration of this movie was really exciting to me. And, like, the fact that I could forget makes me kind of worried about part 2. But we'll see what happens. I'm kind of excited, but kind of worried. Hey, you know... Yeah, hopefully it'll float. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much, Matt. I've been Sylvia Emery. You guys can follow me at Twitter at DoubleDocMD. Matt, anything uh, you want to plug? I'm Matt Guerrero. I'm at Spook Show Cinema on Tumblr and Spook Show Cinema on Twitter. I also have a game studio called Half Lemon Studios. We're working on a game. It's very dear to my heart. And hopefully it should be released in the next year. Oh, yeah. And uh, I believe this October, are you doing 31 Days oh, of Yes, again? I'm doing, uh, I am posting a blog post a day for the 31 days of October, for 31 days of Halloween. We're going to have movie reviews, we're going to have Goosebump art covers, uh, and pixel art, because that's what I do. Just uh, a random celebration of all the things that make Halloween great. Absolutely. Well, we'll be sure to check that out, and thank you so much for showing up. Anyways, thank you, Matt, for being on the show, and thank you, listeners, for listening to On the Slab, the movie autopsy podcast. If you liked what you heard today and you want to support us, tell your friends. We have a marketing budget of exactly zero dollars, so we rely on listeners like you to share us on Facebook, Twitter, scratched in fingernail on the side of a storm drain. Everything helps. Seriously. Every little share does. And besides that, we also have a Patreon. For a dollar a month, you can help us pay our server costs. Uh, maybe even do bonus content, and eventually, we might even look at buying real microphones. Wouldn't that be something? Anyways, thank you so much, and good night.